hello, and welcome to Visually Sacred. My name is Arthur Agajanian, and I'm a Christian contemplative and essayist. In this podcast, I speak with thought leaders working in the intersection of art, visual culture, and religion. Thank you for joining me as we explore the rich and complex role of images in Christian history, culture, belief, and practice. In this episode of Visually Sacred, my guest is Dr. Matthew J. Milliner. Matthew is Associate Professor of Art History at Wheaton College. He holds an MA and PhD in Art History from Princeton University and a Master in Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. Matthew is a five-time appointee to the Curatorial Advisory Board of the United States Senate and was awarded a Commonwealth Fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. He has written for publications ranging from the New York Times to First Things and is author of The Everlasting People and the recently published Mother of the Lamb. At Wheaton College, Matthew teaches a variety of art history courses. Among them are medieval and Byzantine art, Renaissance and Reformation art, and a course called Mother of God, the Art and Theology of the Virgin Mary. I wanted to talk with Matthew about the image of Mary and how she's been visualized over time. So in this episode, he and I sat down to discuss this subject. Mary is a figure that Matthew feels very close to. This is clear in the depth of his studies in, and his passion for, issues around the depiction of the Mother of God. We also talked about the influence of Marian images on Christian faith and Mary's place in relation to contemporary images. I hope that after listening to our conversation, your view of Mary expands in tremendous ways. Mine certainly did. Matt, thank you for being here today. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the ways the Virgin Mary has been visualized over time and how that shaped Christian worship and practice, as well as how her image continues to be reshaped and redeployed in our contemporary visual culture. Thanks for having me, Arthur. It's my, one of my favorite topics, so I'm glad to be here. All right, so let's get started. I'd like to start with the earliest images of Mary and how those evolved and became icons and then developed into the naturalistic images that many people today find more relatable. Mm -hmm. Firstly, in which churches did icons of Mary appear in the Middle Ages and when did this begin? And secondly, how did the advent of Renaissance humanism change how the Virgin Mary had been visualized in the medieval period? And what impact did this have on the church, Christian culture, and modern attitudes about Mary? Well, she's there in the third century. So this is not exactly a, a late development. And if she's there in the third century, at the house church of Duri Europas, where you have an image of Mary at the well, which one scholar, Michael Peppard, argues is itself an Annunciation. There was a tradition of the Annunciation at the well. And if that's the case, that on the banks of the Euphrates River, in the far eastern boundaries of the Roman Empire, we have a house church 
where that image survives and it's in Yale, it's, it was taken to New Haven. That, if that survives in the third century, an image of the Virgin Mary, that indicates that there probably were many that don't survive. So early and often she is depicted because she's just part of the story. In the New Testament, you just don't have Jesus without Mary. That's not, I mean, that's just like, you don't have me without my mom. It's a simple biological fact of how God entered the world, according to Christian belief, that he came the same way that we did, which distinguishes him from the apparition tradition of divine theophanies that are unconnected to human flesh, that are just sort of projections from heaven. So that's the first thing to ground ourselves in, is to realize that the ubiquity of images of the Virgin in early Christian churches, that was a way of communicating the gospel. It wasn't just decor. It was a way of saying, he really took on flesh. Think how convenient that is, faced with um, flesh-denying opponents of Christianity that would say, well, God would never get messy in this physical stuff and certainly would never rise from the dead, um, indicating his mother, where he gestated and took on and was robed in human flesh, is a very convenient dispatch of those sub-Christian ideas. And so that's, it's um, everywhere. And we have countless examples. Well, not countless. It gets um, in the earliest centuries, your your precious, anything that does survive needs to be um, tended and cared for. But we do have numerous examples of some of these early Christian images. One of the most boring avenues of discourse are the scholars who say, oh, well, well clearly they just are, are reflecting the cult of Isis and Isis and Horus. They're ancient icons of Isis and Horus, and therefore Mary and Jesus are just riffing off that. And the reason that's boring is because it just, you pursue that line of inquiry and you say, sure, there's an analogy in the sense of there's a, this woman and you know baby, but the analogies pretty much stop there because he is the uh, firstborn of all creation, which Horus is definitely not that in the Egyptian pantheon. He's way down the chain. And she is not a goddess, but a woman, an earthly woman. And so I remember reading some of these early, this early scholarship and seeing it eviscerated by people are saying, don't tell me that just because in the ancient Christians of Alexandria used uh, icons of the virgin and child that they were closet worshipers of Isis, far from it. They were saying, here's a whole new faith <laughs> where there is no cult prostitution, which there was connected to the cult of Isis. Instead, you have the liberation of chastity for everyone, right? Which is the, the uh, powerful Christian sexual ethic that distinguished it uh, from the pagan world where um, people were relatively... I'm saddled with uh, the sexual desires of a of a culture, you know, placed upon them and and subjugating them, and then all of a sudden, a slave could say what was once just the domain of a Roman matron, that is, chastity is now mine as well. This is the great argument that Kyle Harper makes in From Shame to Sin: this the liberation of Christian sexual ethics. So yes, they're distinguishing themselves, this early Christian tradition, from the pagan cults that surround them. 
Uh, Mary is no goddess, is maybe the first thing to say. And you asked about the Renaissance and, and the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and we have to fast forward so much to get there. But I think the first thing to say before we unpack that distinction, which is so many centuries later, is that from the beginning, there was this deep humanism in depicting a realistic mother and child um, as a way of communicating the Christian gospel. I think one of the most famous and important examples is the Salus Populi Romani, the, the health of the Roman people. This is an icon at Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome. You walk into that church, which according to the best guides I've talked to in, in Rome, several have, who, whose life is leading Roman tours, several of them have told me that their single favorite church in Rome is Santa Maria Maggiore. And I would agree. It is stunningly beautiful, exquisite in every detail. And you walk in and you see all this Baroque splendor. But to the left, as you walk into the church, so of course on the, the famous, the north side where there's a little less light, is you have this uh, stunning image of uh, of the Virgin Mary. Um, and and in, in this humble way that actually inspired, believe it or not, inspired the Mona Lisa. That is a fascinating moment of art historical research. So if you want to talk about the, the Renaissance developments, um, I'm telling you that Leonardo himself, according to some interesting art historians, was himself inspired by um, these deeply humanistic early images of the Virgin Mary and Jesus. Yeah, I guess one of the things that we have to keep in mind is the context and that images that were in the Middle Ages relatively humanistic, as you say, from our vantage point, they're quite, uh, they have a, a strong degree of abstraction because of their distortion and their stylization. So when compared to, I was thinking about how they compare to, say, the Marys of the Renaissance giants, you know, Raphael and Leonardo and so forth, and the way that those Marys were so uh, human in their features and in their representation. And uh, they were, of course, uh, freed into these pastoral landscapes and uh, domestic contexts that were recognizable at, uh, at the time and are recognizable to us today and more relatable. And I think many people have a hard time connecting with those early images of the Madonna because of that stylization and because of that sort of the vocabulary of style and representation, which seems cold and distant to many compared to these Virgin Marys that were clearly modeled on people that the artists knew. That's true. And that's the, the traditional account is that, I mean, you, when you go to the Uffizi, you, you, you see these early abstract icons and then it immediately walks you through. Here we are in Florence at the offices of the Medici, hence the Uffizi, most central museum in Europe and in regard to these this classic art historical narrative, because that's where art history was hatched as an idea. 
And they tell you that, right? They say, look, look at those abstract icons. And then you have Chima Bui. She becomes a little more human and Coppo comes a little bit more. And then finally, Giotto, where she actually um, has breasts like a regular Roman woman. She's no longer this mere idea. And that's true to an extent. And it serves this Renaissance-centered narrative that we have all taken in. But if one of the ironies is that when you begin to take icons on their own terms and not just as a as a preparatory stage toward Raphael, they're deeply human then too. And, and the way that they were received by people in the 1200s and 1300s were precisely in the way you described that this was a deeply relatable, tender, exquisite image of the Virgin Mary. And so, so you're talking to a Byzantine art historian and I have, my whole um, career has been an attempt, and this is what Byzantine art history people do. The Byzantine world lasted from about 330 to 1453, debatable boundaries, but but we had icons like that all this time and the Renaissance got all the credit. But what we now know and is essentially indisputable is the only reason that those developments was occurred was because that the West brought these icons back with them from the Crusades. And when they were received on European soil, it was anything but, oh, here's an abstract icon that I can't really relate to. It was a numinous power of here's the real image of what Mary and Jesus looked like. They often mistake mistook these icons as being painted by St. Luke himself. Right. And so they thought they went all the way back to the, to the ancient Christian era, right? The actual portraits. And therefore they, they were surrounded by this radiance and intimacy and humanity and power. They were both transcendent and imminent at the same time. They were generating all of these miracles. And we think, yeah, but that's the stuff of like the Dark Ages. Michelangelo refers to icons like he would go to miracle working icons of of Mary and Jesus that he got access to. And he had an experience in front of these icons of profound personal piety and prayer. And so what has happened to the field of Renaissance art history is that that view that we had to wait for artists of genius to make Mary accessible has sort of faded as we as we learn more and more about how people actually related to images in the Middle Ages. There are countless studies that are try to communicate this, that the miraculous, um, deep meditation on the place of angels, right? We think, oh yeah, that must have happened like in the 1100s. No, it was happening in the 1500s in Italy, right? Um, they, they, they were, this secularizing view of the Renaissance is being, well, not is being, has been overturned in many ways. So I sort of see, um, I, I totally get what you're saying. And it's true that especially to modern people, um, these more contemporary Madonnas might seem more relatable. But I have found over time that the ancient icons are, are I find them more relatable um, because once you seal the Virgin to a particularly particular view of, of what it means to be female in the, the mid-15th century in, in, uh, in fashionable Florence, um, yes, there's an intimacy there, but then um, the famous phrase, 
when you marry the spirit of the age, you soon become a widower, right? It's just only going to last for so long. I find that the iconic images of the Virgin Mary are the ones that have the staying power over time. That's personal to me. And that's why um, it, it, the other great thing about it is they're replicable. Whereas good luck painting a Raphael Sistine Madonna, right? It's just you have to have a, a, a level of artistic panache and, and prowess and talent that is essentially irrepeatable it's like i'm not gonna it's just like you you typically don't see um the hallelujah chorus uh picked up by in a hymnal and 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 you know sung out on a sunday morning it requires all this training but the beautiful thing about the icon, and I get this from a professor of mine named Gordon Graham, is it really is replicable by a, a lesser artist mm -hmm. as long as she or he has the humility to learn to inscribe onto the icon these truths. I'm just like in the same way we can all sing a hymn, even if we're not virtuoso musicians. And so I do find that... Um, that I, I I do I don't mind letting um, the icon have the upper hand because the Renaissance images of of these supposedly relatable Virgin Marys have had the upper hand in the narrative for so long. I this um this book is uh, a book by Hans Belton called Likeness and Presence, a history of the image before the era of art is a very famous and important book in my field, and that was sort of where I cut my teeth in this discipline. He. He really communicates this clearly, is you've got to understand the way images functioned, in particular images of the Virgin Mary and child, long before we ever had this thing called art in the first place. So um, it's sometimes rather inconvenient for people to hear this and say, gosh, I thought I had art history sort of figured out and now I have to kind of rethink it. I'm like, yeah, that's what we've been up to for the last couple of decades is rewriting the story of art history. One doesn't have to refresh the feed necessarily, but I find it pretty invigorating um, when one does do that, because then the theological is foregrounded instead of just the aesthetic. Yeah, that's a really good point. What about the impact on the church in terms of presenting in the Renaissance and, and onward, say into the Baroque as well? What did it mean for Mary to be painted and portrayed in this philosophically humanistic way uh, what did it mean for the church as an institution and the the place of mary was there any change essentially uh that followed her the change in representation well again it would depend on where and when we're talking about because of course there's so many different focal points of study we could zoom in on sure I think it's probably if we if we took a global view and we wanted to to understand the presence of Christianity not just in the European centers but say in Nubia or in um deep off in the Assyrian church of the east these uh, lesser known um less western forms of Christianity less imperial forms of Christianity there is indeed a consistent presentation of the Virgin Mary and child um, as um, a, a, a means of communicating the importance of the incarnation. And there's a famous story of an Eastern Orthodox prelate coming to Florence 
in the 1400s because he's trying to negotiate um, assistance to keep the Byzantine Empire from collapsing under the Ottoman conquest. And so he's part of this big entourage and he enters Santa Maria Novella, which is the Dominican church in Florence filled with Masaccio's Trinity and Count Girlandio's glorious narratives and, and endless cornucopia of, of great Renaissance art. And he said, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't trust the images. And so instead, I just made a sign of the cross and, and I venerated and honored that. That was the one thing I could trust. And I really relate to that. I think in some senses, that's the voice of global Christianity, because that prelate would represent, I think, not just Eastern Orthodoxy, but a huge swath of the Christian church for whom there's a relatively conservative image culture that would be wary of gussying up the virgin uh, with too much rouge. Right? Let's let's keep her um, as as a as a regular woman. And we, we definitely don't want her to look like a fashionable um, Florentine woman, because then you're going to have um, perhaps, you know, men ogling images of the Virgin without pious intent. And this is the famous critique of Savonarola. So there was an internal critique in Florence as well. Savonarola going around and saying, all right, look, Botticelli, I don't think you're doing this because you honor Mary and Jesus. You're doing this because it's fashionable and you're, you have your eyes on um, the whoever is the contemporary um, senior prom queen, right? I mean, just the, the most attractive woman in Florence. And he hears Savonarola and repents. And he doesn't stop painting images of the virgin and child. He just, they get more tender and pious and emotionally powerful. And so Botticelli's repentance is not to cast down the brush, but to restrain and humble um, his his attempted depictions. It's no different with Albrecht Dürer, who went into a deep melancholic depression in Germany. People didn't quite know what was happening to him. And then he snaps out of it uh, through the doctrine of justification by faith. This is the, he was reading Luther. This is the thing that that kind of, he came to and realized that his own efforts of self-justification are of course going to be inadequate. And that's part of the plan because he has been justified and he doesn't stop painting images of the Virgin either. They just get a little more pared down. They get a little more direct and focused. Let's not get lost in the bells and whistles of the things that surround the Virgin and child. Let's just depict this simple purity of, of the mother of God and, and her divine son. Right. And so across the board, I, that so when 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 one restores the simplicity of and purity of ancient Christian icons, I would consider one to be in solidarity with a far wider swath of Christianity instead of just again trying to make her too fashionable. You know, there's a there's a place for that too. I mean, I I mean, if you want to really depict, I mean, sometimes artists dramatically succeed in in making the Virgin Mary and Jesus immediately accessible. One example of that would be uh, the African-American artist, John Henry, following uh, the, um, the um, 
artists who he's not the first to do this is the most important thing to say, but he depicts these uh, contemporary black women with their children. Um, so a woman holding a son that it seems to be dying or dead. And so these are contemporary pietas that are taken to to awaken people to the contemporary plight of, of urban African-American young men and their parents. And they're haunting and powerful. So I'm not saying it's it, it, I'm not saying that the risks don't sometimes pay off. In that case, they, they really did. Um, but nevertheless, the reason they're powerful is because he's drawing upon the classic iconography of the Pieta of Mary holding her dead child. And were it not for that classical iconography that is informing his photographic work, they wouldn't have the power that they do. And when something has been depicted for millennia, it gains a certain momentum. It's been validated, verified, that it speaks to the faithful. And therefore, artists are wise to avail themselves of those patterns, and I think relatively unwise to depart from them. You need to understand um, those patterns, if, if both, whether either one in depicting um, these classic images, but also in receiving them. I don't want an image around my house that you know, makes the, the Virgin Mary look like you know she was hanging around yesterday. I want something a little bit more with some staying power. And that's what the, the power of these ancient classic icons that go all the way back to the earliest centuries of the church, they really communicate that. Yeah, they have a deep, very deep foundation out of which they mm -hmm. arise. Um, yeah, like, like Gregorian chant. Yeah, absolutely. One hears a variety of theories when discussing the place of Mary in relation to God. Some even speak of Mary as a feminine image of God. How do you think images of Mary relate to ideas of the feminine in Christianity? What's her place there? Well, in one sense, uh, you can't do without her because, again, that's you know the way God came into the world. He, Joseph is not his father, which is why he refers to the heavenly father. Mary is definitely his mother, biologically speaking. And therefore, she is this feminine presence from the beginning that even, I mean, you might say, well, yeah, but we don't see her much in Paul. Well, well, because she's assumed, right? He says in Galatians, born of a woman, right? When he's relating the basic facts of the creed, born of a woman. I mean, he, he knows that this is, how Christ came into the world. And so this feminine element in Christianity, which sometimes people are uh, mistaken in thinking it's not present, well, she would be one of the main carriers of that. Uh, she's not the only carrier of that, but, and I don't, um, and so for some who would perceive a hyper-masculine focus in Christianity, um, and say that you know Mary serves this compensatory role. I would I would begin by challenging the supposition, like what hyper masculine focus are you talking about, right? I mean, Christianity is infinitely translatable, as Andrew Wall says. So it's going to take on different forms in the different cultures, and if it hits a patriarchal 
or a, a misogynist culture, of course, it's going to adapt to that uh, for better or for worse and take on perhaps some of those negative characteristics. But to suggest that the message itself is fundamentally patriarchal or, or male-centered is just, I think, an absurd misunderstanding. I don't know how you could possibly say that about Jesus. Well, for, certainly not. But also, how did he come into the world? I mean, aside from the fact that he his he does pretty well with women, right? Uh, aside from and you know, in a powerfully countercultural way, he he doesn't have a dad the way that normal humans do. The male is not involved in his coming into the world, and the ancient Christian fathers and i'll you know i know there were mothers too but it's interesting to me for my purposes now to say it's the fathers who are forced to say this <laughs> they point out that he doesn't have a father <laughs> right they point out like wow you know a a um gestation without seed right uh, that that for all these you know yes there has been um patriarchy right in this world and women have been subjugated to men and yet, thanks to the way that God saved the world, that has been reversed, and that Mary's obedience undid that, and you have a a fatherless um, entry, and therefore that dethrones um, the masculinist view of the world and rightfully humiliates um, the the um, excessive or domineering male. Right? I mean, think about it like this. <laughs> It's a wonderful book. I think it's called Unmanly Men and um, in, in New Testament criticism. <laughs> the scholar just points out, like, notice how Zechariah, he, he's not allowed to talk, right? When John the Baptist, this is announced in the Holy, you know, he has this experience. He's, he's deliberately shut up. <laughs> and then Mary is allowed to uh, proclaim my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my savior. You don't, you can't make this stuff up. It's just right there in the record. And I'm not saying that men are horrible and they need to be um, constantly beaten up on men have problems too. And we need redemption and thank goodness we have it in Christ. But it is interesting to me to read the simple bare bones of the narrative suggests that she's going to be central as the way through which God came into the world, apart from Joseph. <laughs> and, and then when he does come into the world, he, he obviously has, he is surrounded by an entourage, not just of men, but of women, reaching out to women against the social codes. And then you know, it's the women in all four gospels who are the first to see his resurrection. So I just don't see it. I just get, so not that you're making this critique, but the people that do make that critique, they just don't. I just, I'm like, I, I, what do you, what faith are you talking about? Someone's given you a bad bill of goods and you gotta go back to the sources and see if what they told you was true. And it's not, <clears throat> and we could go, there's all kinds of different approaches we could take to discern this uh, suppressed and neglected feminine element in Christianity. And the, two quick things to say about it, and we don't have to go down this road, but we certainly could, is that, you know, the, what really is an unnecessary move, and a colleague of mine, Amy Peeler, wrote a book called, um, a fantastic book, 
women and the gender of God. And she is in a long, long line of, of classic Trinitarian Orthodox female scholars who have heard the challenge of feminism and said, no, sorry, we're not going to just swap out Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for a creator, redeemer, sustainer, or swap out father for mother. Because that, you don't tinker with that language. Because again, he's called father because he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not Joseph. And mother, you that to give, you know, that, that's Mary. She gets that role. And so just to swap the genders around is to tinker with the beauty and received power of Christian Trinitarian Orthodoxy. And so it really is an indication of a profound lack of having grappled with the tradition when someone is so casually rearranging the language. And what um, Amy points out so brilliantly in this book is that when one doubles down on the tradition and understand its power and wisdom, Mary's role becomes central. And what I would add, she doesn't mention this in her book, but I, I bring it up a, a good bit in, in my own, is that there's also sort of the secret hidden track of, of the Jewish and Christian traditions. And that would be the, the sociological dimension. And some people they hear this like, well, what are you talking about? Is that orthodox? Well, for goodness sakes, it's in the Bible. I mean, have you read Proverbs 8, right? She was with him in the beginning. Oh, that's just a metaphor. Is it? Is it? Uh, it seems to be rather uh, less than purely metaphoric. It, it seems to be the matrix um, through which God made the world is undeniably female. And some scholars say that this was the, the Jewish response to the cult of Isis in Alexandria, where where some of the wisdom literature may have been penned, quite possible, that faced with a divine feminine in a surrounding pagan culture, the Jews immediately communicated that we have this, we have this. And so this Sophia figure, and it's not a, to use Christian terminology, not a fourth member of the Trinity. This isn't, again, don't, I wouldn't, I don't tinker with those classic revelation uh, liturgical language. I, I believe that to be revealed. I'm not going to mess around with that. But it is fascinating that this wisdom figure, she is not um, divine, um, but at the same time, when one reads the great sociological thinkers, both Protestant, Orthodox, and Catholic, one finds, the, finds this extraordinary playground. And I use that word deliberately because wisdom often plays uh, with God in the beginning, when you read these classic texts or when you read um, Sirach or when you read the, the apocryphal text, in addition to the, the non-canonical ones are really interesting too. Um, they're just gorgeous evocations of this feminine field um, through which and in which God made the world. And on top of that, we simply have to assert um, the absurd caricature of Christianity that unfortunately was um, delivered to the world by the artists um, of, a, of, a, of a male god um, with a beard who kind of hovers up there in the sky, this image of God the Father. We, we have been deceived by those images into thinking that God the Father, when we call God Father, we somehow think he is male. He is not male. God, I mean, just it, that is actually straight up uh, 
misinformation to suggest that God the Father is male. And for a simple reason, God the Father is not incarnate. He can't be male, right? In the sense that I am male, he is a person undeniably, but he transcends personhood as we know it. The only incarnate member of the Trinity is Jesus. And Jesus, yes, is male. And he's also Jewish, right? He has all these particularities. And those particularities don't leave out non-Jewish people and leave out women. Those particularities in the mystery of the crucifixion and resurrection contain now everyone. Men and women and non-Jews, right, are all contained in the mystery of the risen Christ. And so when one just has your basic Christian uh, muscles and limbs kind of functioning in a healthy way, all of these facile, just, I don't, I don't want to be rude in my language, but I want to say idiotic. Um, and Because then the critiques just fall. They just don't, they don't have a target. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing too, is that those kinds of simplifications of Christian principles and, and concepts and uh, images really produce a lot of suffering and, uh, and misunderstanding. So that they people, people yeah. turn away from the Christian faith because they've bought those images like God the Father as this bearded man sitting on a throne and judging, they buy that image hook, line, and sinker. That becomes for them what Christianity is all about because that's all they've ever learned. They make a judgment based on that, that this is not something that I want to live uh, through and I don't want this having uh, dominion over my life. And so they just throw the baby out with the bathwater. They do. And and you're reminding me, maybe, you know, maybe I should have more of a penitent tone. Like we should, you know, we should not have, have, you know, we have created these um, misunderstandings of Christianity that we can, we can now correct by going back to the tradition and not, and, and again, add fontes, right? to the sources, the great watchword of, of, the, of the Renaissance and the Reformation. Let's go back to the sources. What do they say? And again, here's the wisdom of Solomon, chapter seven, right? She, I mean, this is, this is some heavy stuff. She is the mobility of all movement. She is the transparent nothing that pervades all things. She is the breath of God, a clear emanation of divine glory. She does all things without leaving herself. She renews all things generation after generation. She slips into holy souls, making them friends of God and prophets. I mean, that's, that's in the great tradition. To say nothing again, it would, it's, you know, might say, well, yeah, but I've gone outside the canon. Well, that's, I, 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 I don't have a problem with the Bhagavad literature, but I, it's in the canon too. It's in Proverbs 8. She was with him in the beginning. And so can we recover that? Can we just go back to that and say that it just adds this missing dimension 
that it's not just for women. It's men need this too. They might need it more because it's been neglected. And we've, we've perhaps been, um, been given a, a, a version of Christianity that was more palatable to us and it's left a missing dimension. So both genders require that the fullness of this tradition to kind of come back into its own. And the Virgin Mary is a part of that. Um, the Virgin Mary, um, there have been great theologians who've pondered the connection of this wisdom figure to the Virgin. And to summarize some vast literature in this area, um, I think it's important to say, don't we shouldn't have a facile conflation because I certainly wouldn't want um, one to be mistaken into thinking that the Virgin Mary is uh, the Sophia figure of Proverbs 8, but she nevertheless reflects that figure in a right. certain way. Um, and so, of course, does Christ. And so I think the key in the regard to this sophiological tradition, um, again, that would be the technical term for it, sophiology is that the study of wisdom in the Jewish and Christian traditions, the key is to just let it be, don't try to pin it down into um, some doctrinal fortress. Let it breathe. Just understand that it's there. Don't try to turn it into, I mean, don't make the foolish mistake of saying, okay, well, now we need a fourth hypostasis in the Trinity. No, 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 no. Don't go, that's not necessary. But just understand there's this sort of um, hidden track that is there to be celebrated and to, re to be received poetically. I think um, my favorite one-volume introduction to this, even though it's a multi-volume series, this one, one that starts is really wonderful, is by Michael Martin called The Submerged Reality. And he does a wonderful job of sketching out this sophiological tradition that um, comprises both the Catholic, Orthodox, and the Protestant churches have all had a wonderful uh, history of this. And it's wonderful to see the feminist theologians that are who discover it, who are like some of them, you know, faced with the dramatic critiques of Christianity, kind of really hear that and want to take it seriously. And then they discover this and like, Oh, <laughs> this tradition is a lot richer than you you'd assumed, you critics of Christianity who stomped out the door um, because you assumed that we all believe God was male. It's just right. not the case. And when they discovered the sociological tradition. Yeah, it all, it, it's, it's also worth pointing out that today there are so many avenues uh, for rediscovery of what the tradition holds because there's so much work being done. There's so much unearthing, totally. we, right? It, it wasn't, that, it's, it hasn't exactly always been right. this way. No, it, it uh, so much has been translated that it wasn't translated before. Yeah. Um, the primary person in this area is Sergius Bulgakov. And all, almost all of his work has now been translated from Russian. And he got it. Uh, from the West and then brought it back. And we all think it's Orthodox, but it actually came from the West. It's a wonderful ex uh, mutual exchange that happens. But in his theological project, which is a lifetime to really understand it and devote oneself to it, it's so beautiful, is he basically brings Sophia back in from the cold and says, we've unjustly neglected this figure. And to at all suggest that Bulgakov is anything less than a full-scale Trinitarian Orthodox thinker is absurd. Now, granted, there were some who didn't understand his project and tried to denounce him as a heretic, 
But his life speaks for itself, and he finished his project, and it really does unfold so beautifully. You don't have to agree with everything he says, but what what is undeniable is is that he he really does bring this into the hearth fire of, of of traditional Christian orthodoxy, and he takes it back from people who are kind of running off into the wilderness. Um, to encounter this Sophia tradition, and it was sort of off the rails. And he 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 brings her home. He bring that is that is the story of Bulgakov. Um, and um, even just if you want to to read all of his work would take forever. But he, fortunately, at the end of his life, it's not been translated into all languages, but it has been translated into English. I remember. <laughs> see <laughs> some people in France complaining, oh, it's not in French yet, but we really wish it was. But fortunately, it's in English. And it's just his little volume called Wisdom, um, and it, um, where he uh, outlines his theological project quite beautifully. I'm just Sophia, right? He just, he lays it out. And he explains, like, this is why it's traditional, right? This is why it's not, you know, the fourth person of the Trinity, none of that. Um, but it, it's just... And he explains how she, how the Virgin Mary relates to her. And I like to tell, you know, if someone has Orthodox inclinations, as I do, um, and, and I don't mean capital O Orthodox, I mean, if one wants to be in the great tradition of Christianity, Nicene Creed, classic Christianity, I like to point out, when I make this point in my book, you have to have a sociology. It used to be, oh, that's just for weird people who kind of want to get a little adventurous. No, you have to have one. Because if you don't, then Arius, Arius the, the heretic, the arch-heretic, right, who said that Jesus isn't fully divine. And his proof text for that was Proverbs 8. That's how the whole Nicene Creed controversy got started. And he read Proverbs 8 and says, you know, clearly uh, wisdom was created and Jesus is wisdom. And therefore he used this proof text and read it in a very literal way. And he said, then Jesus was created. And so the point that I tried to make in my book is that what well, if you believe in the Nicene Creed, that, that the, the beauty of Jesus is not a uh, temporal, but an eternal reality, which thank God, we believe in as Christians, right? Because otherwise, this could just be a guessing game that maybe God's like this, but then eh, you never know. Maybe he's not really suffering love, right? Maybe he's not really resurrected glory. Maybe he's kind of a little cruel. Who knows, right? The Nicene Creed anchors you um, that the revelation of God in Christ is eternal. It's always been the way God is now and ever shall be. And if that's the case, then you are. Uh, your Proverbs 8 has to be disentangled from a direct connection or a literal connection to Jesus, because clearly uh, Proverbs 8 is created wisdom. And that therefore opens up this chapter of that wonderful, playful concept of Sophia alongside of, um, of Christ. Now, again, you might say, right, but doesn't the New Testament relate Jesus to wisdom? Yes, it does. But that's why I mean, you don't, you don't have to have this literalistic view that has everything pinned down. You just have to let it breathe. Like, just understand that the canon is the canon, and this extraordinary figure of wisdom. We were reading Ecclesiasticus. Uh, another word for that apocryphal uh, book is Sirach. Um, in morning and evening prayer sessions, we have 
at Wheaton College. And whenever you read from the Apocrypha, you don't say the word of the Lord. You say, here ends the lesson because it's not canonical. And so we're reading this and it never, even though you can still profit from it. And what's amazing is that we were reading in Sirach and it said, pursue wisdom like a hunter, right? I just love that. Like you should be hunting for wisdom in your life. And that's what the liberal arts are about. That's what study is about. It's just, we should all be in this pursuit, but we're also being pursued at the same time. It's just right. wonderful. Yeah. And all of this is compatible with monotheistic, Trinitarian Christian faith. Yes, yes, absolutely. In some churches, Mary has a very important place, including the Catholic and my own Armenian Apostolic Church. Wonderful. You're Armenian Apostolic. That's incredible. I love it. She is, what a tradition. She has a paramount uh, place in it, both in terms of uh, reference to her and uh, representation of her, visible mm. representation. For Protestants, she has traditionally played a less prominent role in devotion. What role does Mary play in the various churches, and how is this borne out in her visualization? It's interesting when at my local Catholic church, mass ends, the majority of people who go to one of the statues that are available in the church, they go to Mary. And that's, uh, that's the most popular representation there in the church. I mean, you have Jesus across on the other side, directly opposite, a sacred heart Jesus image, and he's very lonely. After most, no of the, one's going to visit Jesus. Yeah, after after <laughs> most of of the the services, so um, yeah. it's it's extremely obvious that there's a strong devotion in the uh, Catholic Church, and I made reference to her place sure. in the Armenian Church sure. as well. You really don't hear much about Mary in the Protestant Church, and of course, there's less representation in general, visual representation in the Protestant church across the board. Do you see a sort of, do you have kind of a map that you can describe how she appears in the various denominations in terms of um, prominence or being more in the background and maybe some of them... Um, most, what in your mind would be the most representative examples mm. of how Mary would appear in the Protestant church, broadly speaking, how she would appear in the Catholic church? And we're talking about, I'm talking about today in the, in the contemporary churches yeah. uh, internationally. It's a tough question to answer because what I want to do is just destroy the, the caricature. And not that you have that caricature, but the, the caricature that that most people have with counterexamples and say, oh, oh, really? You know, there's no virgin. Well, what about this? Boom, 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 boom. And what about the acts of horrific iconoclasm that we all know happened in the Roman Catholic Church as a result of the Second Vatican Council? I can, I've been to churches where she has been erased, right? And there was a sort of a dethroning that took place in, in Vatican II that um, she did not get what many people wanted her to get, which was her own separate document. She was subordinated in uh, Lumen Gentium, I believe. And it's a wonderful document, 
But um, many people say that Mary was sort of eclipsed in Catholicism. And the reason I don't, I'm not going to go down that road is because one has to concede the point that indeed she was abandoned. We threw not the baby out with the bathwater. We threw the mother out. (laughs) And so um, it is a, it's something to lament, but I love being part of the recovery, right? And, and she is being recovered. And so then having conceded the point that um, there are Catholic traditions that have erased her too, there's a art historian, Alexander Nagel, who points out that um, there was a, a huge famous image of Mary, Duccio's Maestan Siena, that was removed from its central location before the Reformation because it was being approached idolatrously. So he proves this, that there was an entire rearranging of the Siena Cathedral, the Duomo, in order to uh, address an excessive view of Mary um, and correct it. And so again, it's, and then at the uh, the other end, Tara Hamling, an art historian points out that here's a Puritan fishmonger in the 1600s in, in England who has a, an image of the tree of Jesse culminating in the Virgin Mary and child in his home. <laughs> and she's like, uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Those of you with the caricature of that, oh, Protestants and Puritans don't have images of Mary and they're undeniable. And that's not the only one. And so I, I constantly try to point these out to people and say, look, you know, Eamon Duffy's The Stripping of the Altars is true. There was this erasure, but it was compensated for later. You might say, well, yeah, but what about the reform? Them, them too, right? There's a wonderful book by Angela, I believe her name is Van Halen, in The Wake of Iconoclasm. And she just shows all these reformed churches with images of the Virgin Mary, whether it's a tender woman uh, suckling her child on the floor of a whitewashed Protestant church interior in Harlem and in the lowlands. And it's just obvious that this regular woman is doing the function, the work that the Virgin Mary once did. Or way up in the stained glass window, you have an image of Mary clothed with the sun that they chose not to punch out right during iconoclasm. And it's no different with the great um, Nuremberg Lutheran churches that didn't touch the images of the Virgin Mary when they became Protestant. And so it's really important to keep that all in mind, that there are a lot of counterexamples. And most ironically of all is that people would say, oh, I really want a robust sophiology, all the stuff we were talking about. I want to get it all from the great Sergius Bulgakov. Let's say someone took that advice and went to read it. It's not going to, you're not going to go for very long until you realize that Bulgakov's inspiration was Jakob Burma, who was a Lutheran, who had these wonderful visions of Sophia. And that is where Bulgakov got so many of these ideas. And it's also where Hegel and others got their ideas and kind of ran off in a sub-Christian direction with them. But um, all this to say is that the the the, the field has uh, shifted considerably, um, thanks to a lot of this work. And so, as a Protestant, I'm myself and I'm Anglican. Um, I have a lot to to work with as far as this recovery project of the Virgin Mary. We've been teaching. My colleague Amy Peeler and I have been teaching a class on the Virgin Mary at Wheaton for many years now, and over and over and over again. 
um, you just have these students pile into that class and do these phenomenal projects that um, th that restore and do the recovery work in their own tradition, they find what was missing. And so if you put that together and say, here I am at you know, an evangelical school, Wheaton College, and, and two Anglican professors, uh, we are, who both have been published in this area, you know, I would say, what Protestant church are you talking about? I look around and Mary's kind of everywhere. When I go to church, I've got images of her um, along the side of our church. I mean, we deliberately place her there. Um, I teach about her all the time. So she's really not an absence for me. And I guess you could say, yeah, but in the church in general, um, she is. But then again, um, I would say, you know, check in with your average Catholic parish right now, right? Um, and I hope it would be different. I'm so thrilled, you know, and I'm glad she's being visited in your church, right? And um and I and sometimes people say, yeah, but you know, this is at the expense of your relationship with Jesus. And I don't think I just that that I never uh, I can imagine why that critique would make sense to some people, and I'm sure there are examples where that that hits the mark. But in normal, healthy Christianity, that there shouldn't be competition there. I like to use the analogy, you know, the better I know my in-laws, the better my relationship with my wife is going to be. And it, it would be a really just downright creepy, right? If I, I there was a contest there, right? Where I say, oh, you know, I'm not going to hang out with my wife today. I'm just going to hang out with my in-laws. I'm like, what are you doing, right? Or vice versa. Like, oh, I want nothing to do with your parents, sweetie. You're just mine. I, I could care less about your mom and dad. It's like, that would be unhealthy too. And so that's who, who these are, right? Mary is is the she's the um, part of the family and getting to know her better is going to facilitate your relationship with her son. I suppose it might just be uh, a question of amount of time spent or amount of attention spent that one might criticize those who spend time in devotion to Mary Mm. Uh, and ask, well, why don't you just go directly? I mean, it's a Protestant critique, isn't it? Why don't you just go directly to the source? Yeah. You know, why, why are you stopping and spending? Well, she is I, the, the source. Yeah. She's yeah. the source from which he came. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a, that's a yeah. good point. Um, but it's, it's also a similar, it's similar when, when Protestants argue that one should not go through, through the saints, right? for yeah. uh, a connection to God and for that relationship, right? Isn't it a similar type of yeah. uh, uh, and there, mindset? There's a great Robert Jensen line, Robert Jensen being the great Lutheran theologian who died not too many years ago, but um, extraordinary. He was in Princeton when I was there toward the end of his life and got to talk to him about some of these things and just an extraordinary human being and a true man of letters in the classic sense and had mastered this tradition actually knew Karl Barth right um actually went to a Heidegger seminar once so in this great tradition of of German theology and having brought it with such concision to fruition in his brief but beautiful systematic theology 
is his line. He says it in that wonderful two volume work. He says that, that, um, um, the saints are not our way to God. God is our way to them. <laughs> right. In other words, like, you know, Mary is not my way to Jesus. Jesus is my way to Mary. Right. It's very interesting. Like, it, and you might say, well, why would you do that? Because I want to expand my relational connections in the kingdom of God. And she's really important. And so I have the freedom um, to cultivate and develop that relationship. Um, it's part of the joy of the family of God, of which she is sort of the the reigning mother, right? <laughs> Sense of like a good Jewish mother is kind of in charge, right? And she 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 plays that role. She has that place of honor. And so why wouldn't I uh, cultivate that devotion? And again, it's just never, I just don't, I don't understand this uh, zero sum game, right? And you might say, well, come on, this is the the great suspicion of idolatry that should be instilled in you in the Reformed tradition that it's all over the Old Testament. It's like, well, I get that. And if, you know, if this is um, calcifying into some or metastasizing into some idolatrous practice, sure, I get that. But I don't think that's where we are. That may have been where we were in the 16th century, right? Witness the Siena Duomo, right? To say nothing of the idolatry that the Protestants corrected. I think now we're in a place where there's this urgency to cultivate and build the devotion. And maybe it'll be the job in 100 years to, you know, or 50 or whatever to, to cut it back. But right now we know that it's been so denuded that, that it needs to be constructed again, if only to have an answer um, to the, the feminist critiques of Christianity that are so easily answerable if one appeals to this tradition. And the embers are burning. They just require a little more fuel. And that's what I mean by this. Across the traditions, Protestantism included, you just have these, I think Marian devotion should flourish in, in all of the traditions. And if someone doesn't understand that, like, look, they may, may have some real psychological issues or, you know, stuff that they've got to work through. They can't have anything to do with this marriage. They're like, good. Okay. Well, you go work that out and God bless you. And I pray for, you know, your healing and restoration. But when that person comes around, they're probably going to find the need for this kind of thing. So it's sort of something for kind of healthy Christians, well catechized, like understand, like of course you would gravitate toward understanding this. And I have the entirety of the decorative tradition of global Christianity at my disposal as evidence that this is what happens when Christianity normally matures. And if one were to reply and say, no, it's what happens when it gets corrupted, I'd be like, eh, I don't think so. I mean, John Henry Newman, his critique is pretty, I mean, I disagree with a lot of what he said, but this was right. He's, he said, look at the cultures that tossed out the Virgin Mary. Eventually, they tossed out Jesus, too. And look at the cultures that held on to the Virgin Mary. They're the ones that have stayed Christian. I'm like, that's a good point. So again, it's just this, um, she's a way of honoring the, the Lord 
And um, I just don't see this, the, the not at the expense of uh, your relationship with Christ, but to its enhancement. Right, right. That's great. That's a great way to look at it. Much more generous and considering the the family, the sacred family of uh, the saints and and mm-hmm. Mary and all of all of the parts of of the larger picture is something that is beneficial for us always to come back to if we get too stuck on any one particular figure or any one specific representation. Let's look at popular culture and the appearance of Mary in the everyday. The mother and child image is what I'm thinking about and how Mm -hmm. that continues to occupy an important place in visual culture. For example, it's widely deployed in advertising. What kinds of theological constructs do you find underlying certain images of mothers with children in popular culture? Would you say that these images are based on the Virgin Mary, or might they simply be modeled on mythical archetypes? Or is that distinction impossible to make? Yeah, that I mean, of course, you know, the the straightforward, well, of course, just, you know, mothers have children, and of course that would show up in art is it's a flat read of that. Like, why would you have to see that as the Virgin Mary? It's like it's just obviously a biological fact. And that's true to an extent. But I tend to see when you have this numinous, radiant image of a Mary of a woman and child, such as a Marie Cassatt impressionist painter in America, right? There's obviously a a for me a Marian dimension to those images. I mean, she's hanging out in Paris. She's seen churches like this, and she sort of brings it the way that Henry Adams brought it um, to the United States and Mont Saint Michel and Chartres and said. You know, there's something missing in the United States. There's this Maryless world. And when you go to Europe to this day, you still see it. You know, this Mary statue along the streetscape and consecrating the town. And you say, and so I, I often see it as sometimes a missing maternal dimension. But at the same time, I just, you know, I, I wish I would see it more, right? I, I um, the most visually shocking um, image I've seen in popular culture in a while. And um, I'm looking at an image of it right now. I took it this summer, so I'm going to describe it to you. So I walked out of the Pantheon in Rome, central Rome, this great domed building built with the marvel of Roman engineering, this glorious dome that wasn't surpassed for centuries, but it was this this peak of Roman achievement but then it became a church, and in the church, there's a, a beautiful, small, uh, ancient icon from the early 7th century, the, the um, Pantheon Madonna. And it's Mary and Jesus, and it communicates everything we just suggested, right? This encapsulation of the early Christian faith. So we're in this church, and um, again, I see it as a church, not just a museum. And I've worshipped there before, right? When they exit the tourists, I, I hold my ground because I'm not I'm not a tourist, I'm a pilgrim. And so, uh, so I experienced this space and exited the church after taking it in. 
And I walked into the courtyard, and of course, you know, you see your classic Egyptian obelisks that are capped with crosses, and you see surrounding beautiful hotels in that neighborhood. What, what a gorgeous view you get if you have a hotel right along there. And I remember looking up, see this guy just open up his shutters with his white fancy bathrobe on. I'm like, man, you know you have it, right? And the rest of us are staying like, you know, uh, somewhere deep in the suburbs. All that to say. So I walk into the central courtyard of the Pantheon and I saw it. I saw this uh, classic image of the Virgin Mary that um, enhanced a building nearby. So one of these typical kind of consecrate the cityscape classic Virgin Marys. And and then I saw this massive billboard advertisement that was at least three times larger than the Little Virgin Mary uh, for Prada. And it was this model who is dressed in emblazoned red, looking a little um, too cool for school, of course. And she's clinging to a symbol bag um symbol with an e s y m b o l e so i guess that's a, a, a brand or i guess it's a sub brand of prada or i don't not quite sure by carrie may weems a very famous and you know fashionable contemporary artist and i just and i looked at this and the woman was caressing and holding the bag and that's all she had <laughs> and and it was you know, I just couldn't help but think of the play on words of symbol, but there's no referent. It's just a bag, right? And it's and it's probably an empty bag. There's nothing. She doesn't hold the salvation of the world in her arms. And this is the emptiness of, of modern consumerist culture. And it was just there staring at me. And I could not help but think of that dramatic contrast. So I just don't see... The Virgin Mary and child references enough in human culture, in our contemporary consumerist culture. That for me was a place where the the divine had been replicated by a, a handbag, and that to throw a bone to my reformed brothers and sisters in Christ. That's idolatry. That's so what deeply concerns me. Yeah. So it it's an example of using um, recognizable iconic uh, imagery, but it functions as a shell. It's, 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 oh, it's, it's hollow inside. It's, it's used, the referent is there to connect you to a history of images, but the message itself is barren. It, perfect word, Arthur, barren, a barren, barren world. And, um, and it's, I, I look at that. It's a, I think it's the saddest photograph I ever took. And I look at it. It just makes me. And and you might say, oh, come on. You people got to have their purses, right? And it's like, no. The way that it was de deployed was um, eclipsing the traditional understanding of Mary and Jesus. And so, so you have Roman paganism, right? Pantheon to all the gods. And then it, Christianity. And then the new faith. Um. What a, what a disaster. And again, I would say, I'm, I'm not saying that anyone who ever shops is, you know, doomed. No, not saying that at all. I'm just saying, don't you just feel the hollowness of that? Right. Santa Maria Sopra Minerva is nearby. Mary on top of the 
the uh, Minerva temple. And, and now you have uh, <laughs> Santa Prada Sopre Maria. So, you know, it's like, oh, no, oh, it's horrible. Well, it's interesting, I, you know, in a place like Rome, that's a city where you're going to have a lot of surprising juxtapositions and overlaps, right, of the different types of belief systems and uh, histories and um, this, this, I'm struck by the fact that you saw those images in relationship in the same place and time that were yeah. in this this overlapping the the commodity culture christianity and yeah. early roman pagan architecture yeah it's it's kind of a it's 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 something that we can see in a lot of places that have history uh, that they've preserved as societies build and uh, sort of develop and maintain those older structures and uh, representations, then we start to see these really unusual overlaps and superimpositions and canceling out. And it kind of makes for uh, almost like a, a visual essay. You know, you, all, all the issues are sort of out there in front of you. you know, within your panorama. Exactly. And it, you know, it's funny more, I think about it, like all of Rome was like that, at least this summer. Like I remember going to the um, Piazza, one of the famous Mary Piazzas, and there was just this huge billboard for Thor uh -huh. from the Avengers. And I'm just like, and I was joking with someone, oh, well, here we are at Piazza del Maria. No, uh, Piazza del Thor. <laughs> you know, and it, it just, our culture is so powerful. And I can't, and I know that you might say, well, they got to make money somehow, right? It's like, no, I wonder, is this deliberate? Is this a spirit that is conquering places once called sacred, right? And that, you know, maybe it disproves Newman's point that even the great Rome, right? It's not just um, Protestant cities like Amsterdam that have been colonized by consumerism and, and decadence, but it's happened to those cities too. So, for goodness sakes, instead of pinning the blame on one uh, confession and saying, well, it's the Protestants' fault or it's the Catholics' fault, we've just got to band together against this common threat. And it really is a threat. And restore it, not just with good, precise theology. That's important, but how many people are going to read that? But not, But that theology visualized in yeah. beautiful devotional images of Mary and Jesus. So I guess I just, I mean, for someone who who just is allergic to them, I'm like, again, I'm sorry about your issues. Go work it out. It'll be okay. And then come back when you're ready and join us in the, pro I know that might be sound very patronizing to people, but sorry. I mean, it's like, look, you got to figure these things out. You do your depth psychology work, right? Pray it through. And then when you get when you get realigned, join the maturing Christian fold of increasing devotion and love of Jesus that the love of the mother doesn't compete with, but merely enhances. Finally, Matt, I'd like to ask you, why are the things we are discussing important for all Christians? 
and how do these images and the issues that come along with them impact the larger world? And I think you're speaking to that to a certain degree in what you were just saying about yeah. the, the cityscape. Yeah. Any, any other thoughts on that? You know, I was thinking we were had a, in church today, we were talking about the word metanoia, which is so fruitful in the sense of yeah. not doesn't just mean turning and repentance. It really, really means a meta, like a like in the sense of beyond the mind, the noia. And I, I use it as a great tool for Christian meditation, sort of um, not just getting locked and trapped in the circuits of the mind, but uh, to use Jakob Boma's great phrase, like a uh, uh, a um Galassenheit, just surrendering to to God. And um, and so getting meta the mind, right? The mind descending into the heart. The mystics of all the traditions have, have approached that in different ways. But I could not help but think, of course, of meta and Mark Zuckerberg's attempt to use that term um to for his new kingdom of this digital virtual world that is above and beyond the world that of course he's quite happy to commercialize and have everyone enter into and i i want to resist i want to resist just like i want to resist the cloud or you know with uh, which is also you know biblical language to describe data storage no 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 what about the cloud in the old testament or the tablet, right? I mean, all of this is it, or, or the way that the that the Apple Store in New York is shaped like the Kaaba, right? The cube in the center. I mean, all of this is attempting. Let's see what's happening. These these are colonization attempts on on sacred realities. And so, if that's what we're up against, with its power um, only beginning to be unfurled to us. It's power of warping, it's power of hurting, it's power of um, stealing souls, I think we could go so far as to say. Um, we need to be working together and we need to use all the powers at our disposal. And one of those is the great tradition of Christian iconography. Know it, take advantage of it, be well-versed in it, deploy it. Have images of Mary and Jesus in your classrooms, in your homes, as a way of staking out this terrain. This doesn't belong to Facebook. Yeah, I was thinking it, to be able to recognize those original sources when you see them, like you said, colonized or ripped off, and to be able to say that actually comes from, you know, if if more people knew where these uh, representations, these commercial representations, what they're rooted in or, or what they're drawing from, that would be an amazing thing in and it's, yeah. of itself, right? Yeah. Matt, thank you for being with us today and helping us to appreciate the fascinating history and influence of Marian images and what they can mean for us today. There is so much to explore on this subject, and your knowledge and perception are valuable gifts to us. I look forward to more great work from you in the future. Thank you, Arthur, and thank you for starting this podcast. It's a great gift to, to me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Visually Sacred. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, 
please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, Arthur Agajanian, please visit my website at imageandfaith.com. You can also join my Facebook group, Contemplatives in Conversation, and follow me on Twitter at Art Agajanian. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode of Visually Sacred. Thanks for joining us.